Hey, so, God is good. God is good. Amen? How often is He good? All the time. Did you experience that this week? Huh. Right? It's a different question. Did you experience God's goodness this week? I hope you did because He's always good. Just look. Just look at our God. He's good. All right, so check it out. I leave tomorrow morning on vacation. Um, my oldest daughter, Chelsea, finished her last final for law school on Wednesday morning, right? Yay, Chelsea. So my wife and I and my two girls, we're taking off. We're going to go to New York and Boston, and I'll be at Fenway Park next Saturday night. Excited about that. It's a couple Broadway shows because I'm very sophisticated that way. But in all seriousness, I really need, I covet you guys' prayers because when I travel with my wife and my daughters, I come back and my elbows get really, really sore from traveling because all I do is drive and then I reach in my wallet and I pay. And I reach in my wallet and I pay and then I drive and then I reach in my wallet and I pay. And my elbows get really tired after spending a week with my wife and my daughters. So keep my elbows in your prayer. Uh, I'd really appreciate that. Um, <laughs> I don't know. So uh, next, so Pastor Dave, he leaves tomorrow for three weeks for his work. He's going to Orlando to do some work for Disney. So he's going to be gone for three weeks as well. So keep Pastor Dave and, and of course, us uh, in your prayers. He'll be gone, like I said, for just shy of three weeks, um, which means we're not having church next Sunday. Just kidding. Pastor Doug will be preaching out of Ezra 6 next Sunday. And, right? Hey, I don't know how to take that. I'll take it the right way, that you're really excited to hear from Pastor Doug. I hear it's going to be incredible. And I heard that from Pastor Doug. I said, how's it going to be? And he says, it's going to be incredible. So um, if if he's lying to me, you guys need to let me know. He is so faithful. You guys are going to love what he is going to do next weekend out of Ezra 6. Um, Yeah, we're good. We're up to speed. Let's jump in. Oh, man, this is so fun. I don't suppose anybody here has heard of an organization with the acronym NFRO. Has anybody heard of the NFRO organization? I I hadn't either. NFRO stands for, put the card up, it stands for the the National First Responders Organization. And if you become a member, you get a whippy skippy card like this one here. The NFRO, National First Responders Organization. And they state this. They state that the NFRO NFRO seeks to create a unity of local and federal police, firefighters, and emergency medical professionals and volunteers, creating a unity of first responders who will work to ensure that our brothers and sisters are never alone and we are always properly trained and equipped to carry out the duties of a first responder. Right? The following are just a few that are listed on their website. Of course, police officers and firefighter, nurse, dog warden. (laughs) I thought that was cute. Uh, Lifeguard, bridge and tunnel officer, fish and wildlife officer, an insurance investigator, a postal inspector, an air traffic controller, and district attorney, and many, many others. Their website declares the following. I love this. They say this. At the NFRO, or at NFRO, our definition of a first responder is simple. A first responder is any individual who runs toward an event rather than away. A first responder is anybody who runs toward something rather than away from something. something. When they get word of something, they respond. They run toward what needs to be done rather than away from what needs to be done. 
I'm sure I, like you, are very grateful for all those who are first responders. Thank you so very, very much. And while I clearly understand the purpose of this organization, I couldn't help but wonder, as I did a little homework on their website, if the Christian or the church would make the list of first responders. You kind of get where I'm going with this. When, when, we, when we get word from our amazing, loving, gracious, powerful, and sovereign God, are you and am I first responders? Isn't that a great question for us to ask? When God sends word, are we willing to be first responders? Do we run toward what God's calling us to or away from what He's calling us to? How do we respond? Remember, a first responder is somebody who runs toward something rather than away. There are many things and people that we respond to each and every day, each and every hour of each and every day. But if there is ever a time for us to be first responders, is it not when our Lord sends word to us? Are we willing to run toward the things of God rather than away? Isn't that a great question for us? Let's recap where we're at going into Ezra chapter 5 this morning. I'm going to put the chart up. We showed this last week. The kings, and of course as you work down the chart, it gets closer to Christ. If you recall, we're going to keep this up until uh, we get through this little section here. If you recall from Ezra 1, Ezra 1 starts in 538 B.C. Ezra 1, if you remember, chapter 1, the Lord stirred up the spirit of who? Who did the Lord stir in the heart of in Ezra chapter 1? King Cyrus. So that he would issue a decree allowing God's people to go back to Jerusalem to restore the temple. And then in Ezra 2. So that took place in 538. The decree took place in 538 B.C. in Cyrus's rule. And then in Ezra 2, which is 537 B.C., in Ezra 2 we're given a very detailed account of all the people that went back to Jerusalem. And it totaled just shy of 50,000 people. And that was 537, Ezra 2. And then in Ezra 3, which was a couple weeks ago, God's people gather together. Now that they're back, they gather together, Ezra 3 says, as one man to rebuild the altar of the God of Israel so they can once again enter into a proper worship and a proper fellowship with God. And then they begin to lay the foundations. And that took place in 536 B.C. And then what happened last week? Did that work continue or did it stop? It stopped. It stopped in 536 B.C. all the way to 520. So in Ezra 4, which was last week, we're introduced to numerous adversaries that came up in chapter 4 of Ezra. And they cover numerous years, over 100 years, and, and numerous kings, and how the enemies or the peoples of the land, which is Samaria, discouraged God's people, the people of Judah and frightened them from building the temple all the way for 16 years, from 536 all the way to 520 B.C. The people stopped building God's holy temple that God had given them permission through King Cyrus and resources to build. And so as we enter chapters 5 and 6, 5 today, 6 next week, we are reminded of the history of the rebuild of God's holy temple. Church, we have a history. We have a history, and this, these two chapters remind us of this part of our history. It's important to know our history. The Rock Community Church started in November of 2003. That's part of our history, but it's not where we started. We started 
long before then what God, God's work and what God's doing. And this is just part of our history. And we need to know our history. And I love to encourage people to get in the history of God, get into the Old Testament as much as the New Testament, to really understand the history. And so we're going to do that here in, in 5 and 6 of Ezra, that we have a history, and it's the history of the, the rebuild of the temple. And we also see that the rebuilding was sovereignly ordained by who? By God. And this, you know, God's sovereign work to rebuild his temple would be carried out through pagan rulers. This time, as we enter Ezra 5, it's going to be Darius I. Here's what we need to learn from all this. That we are never to fret or fear over pagan rulers when we know and serve a sovereign God. Amen? We must never fear or fret pagan rulers when we serve and know a sovereign God. That's why we need to know our history. It's not about, listen, it's not about where we cast our ballots, church. It's not about where we cast our ballots, but it's where we cast our cares. It's where we cast our cares. Check out Psalm 55, verse 22. The psalmist tells us what? Cast your burden upon the Lord, and He, He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. It's not who we put into office here. It's not who other countries put into office there. It's the sovereign God that we serve. We are never to fear or fret when we serve and know a sovereign God. Look at what 1 Peter says in his first letter. What Peter says in his first letter, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. He says, Therefore, church, humble yourselves. Recognize who you are and who He is. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time and cast all of your anxiety on Him because He cares for us. We have to make sure we know where we're casting our cares. Don't worry about where you cast your ballots. Worry about where you cast your cares on a sovereign, loving, caring Lord. Let's read Ezra 5. We're going to read Ezra 5, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll jump into the outline. Turn to Ezra 5, verse 1. Ezra 5. Let's read that together, and then we're going to pray. Verse 1. When the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, and they did so in the name of the God of Israel, who's over them. Then, after being prophesied, then Zerubbabel and uh, the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua, they arose and they began to get back to work. They began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. What a beautiful picture. And at that time, Tatanai, the governor of this area, and Shethar Bozani and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish the structure? And then we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this building. And the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them from building. They didn't stop them until a report could, could get to Darius or to come to Darius and then a, waiting for a reply. So they allowed them to continue to, to build. And so here's the report, essentially, verses 6 through the rest of this chapter, this, verse 17. This is the copy of the letter which Tatanai, the governor, uh, and, and his colleagues who were beyond the river, this is what they sent to Darius the king. So they sent a report to the king, which is written thus, to Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah 
to the house of the great God, which is being built with, with huge stones and, and beams that are being laid in the walls, and this work is going on with great care oh, and is succeeding in their hands, of course. Then we asked those elders and we said to them thus, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish the structure? We also asked them their names so as to inform you that we might write down the names of the men who were leading this rebuild. And thus they answered us, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished, which was King Solomon. Verse 12, But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree that they could rebuild the house of God. And also the gold and silver utensils that were, that were taken from Nebuchadnezzar out of Jerusalem and taken to the temple in Babylon, these King Cyrus also took from the temple of Babylon and, and gave to Sheshbazar, who was governor at the time of the people of Judah. And he said to him, Take these utensils, go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem as you rebuild it, and let the house of God be rebuilt in its place. So Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. And from then until now it has been under construction. Of course, it had stopped for 16 years, and it is not yet completed. So if it pleases the king, Tatanai's close in his letter, if it pleases the king, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, if it be that a decree was indeed issued by Cyrus to rebuild the house of God at Jerusalem, and then let the king send us his decision concerning this matter. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this part of history that helps us understand a little bit more about who you are, a little bit more about how you work, and of course a little bit more about how we are to respond to a God who works that way and loves us this way and who is faithful to his word in the way you are here in the book of Ezra. God, we present our lives to you. We ask that you have your way with us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name, and we all said, Amen. All right. Let me give you the outline. So, the three stanzas, verses 1 and 2, is about a good word. They get a good word from two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Okay? Haggai and Zechariah, the two prophets that show up here in Ezra chapter 5. And so, they, God has a word for them, and it's always a good word, right? And then in verses 3, 4, and 5, we have a governor, Tatanai, who's wondering if this is cool. Like, is this all right that they're building? And so he sends a letter. And that letter is in verses 6 through 17. And in that letter, he just is telling King Darius what he was told by the Jewish people. He's just repeating, hey, this is what they're telling me. And what they're telling him is that God's been working. That's what they're telling Tatanai. And Tatanai is telling Darius, hey, this is what they say God's doing. Is it true? And we'll find out next week if you want to read ahead in Ezra 6. Oh, it's true. Okay? So those are our three stanzas. Let's, let's reread verses 1 and 2. So our, the first part of our stanza, a good word. So these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they prophesied to the Jews in Jerusalem. And they prophesied in the name of the God of Israel who was over them all. And then what happened? Then Zerubbabel and Jeshua, what did they do? They arose and began to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were there supporting them. These prophets, Haggai, okay, so Haggai, all right, Haggai prophesied from August of 520 
to December. August, September, October, five months. August through December is Haggai. The rebuild started right after that in September. And then Zechariah started prophesying in October, and he prophesied for a couple years. So Haggai kind of jump-started him, right? Stayed with him for a while, and then Zechariah kept with him for a couple years, okay? In 520 B.C. Church history shows, listen, church history, our history shows us this, that when God wants to arouse His people to do His will, He calls somebody to proclaim His word. When God wants to arouse His people to do His will, He calls somebody to proclaim His Word. Why? Because our Lord's will is never found outside of His Word. Our Lord's will will never be found outside of His Word. If somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, I really feel like God wants me to do this. And it seems kind of like, Oh, are you sure? Well, let's see what His Word says. I feel like God's leading me to do that. Well, let's, let's see what His Word says. God never will have us do anything in His will that's outside of His Word. Ever. His will can't be found outside of His Word. Any work of God, any work of God that isn't built on the Word of God, any work of God not built on the Word of God will ultimately what? Fail. That's right. Any work of God not built on the Word of God will ultimately fail. Check out Joshua 1.8. You know, it's funny, I always point to the screen that I can see. I always do that. Hey, look at Joshua 1a. And you guys never do, so you clearly you know what I mean. Look at Joshua 1a. I have a screen back there in case you didn't know. Joshua 1a. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success the way that God desires for us to prosper and have success, not the way the world desires for us to prosper and have success. Look at what the psalmist writes in Psalm 19. Turn to Psalm 19. It's to the right of Ezra. You'll find uh, Psalms. After the book of Job, you'll find Psalm, uh, Psalm 19. Great, great verses from our psalmist. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. What does it do? It restores the soul. Some of us have soul problems. Honestly, our souls are burdened often. Get in the Word of God. Why? Because it says the law of the Lord is perfect. It will restore your soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It allows a simple guy like me to sound like I'm wise because I'm in His Word. And should it not? I tell people, and I'm not joking when I say this, I'm not the smartest guy. I'm just kind of a simple-minded guy. I'm encouraged by this word, that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise, simple people like me. The precepts of the Lord are right, and they rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, and enlightens our eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. And they're sweeter also than than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by God's word, your servant is warned. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do this. Do this. And in keeping them, there is great reward. 
hey, look, I've had hardship like many of you. But I literally tell people I've lived a charmed life. My life is rewarded because of God's word. And I have a deep appreciation for that reality. This is my life. And I'm so thankful for that. God's word changes everything. Both prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they're concerned with the temple because they could never fulfill the duties of the Mosaic covenant until the temple worship was reinstated. God's people, as we saw last week, had stopped work on the temple, even though it was never declared for them to stop. If you remember that last week, they stopped for 16 years. Cyrus gave them a decree that they can build, and they stopped. Do you remember why they stopped? They were afraid. They became afraid. They got their eyes off of the Lord. And out of fear, they stopped what God had encouraged them and told them to do. So, let me ask you this. So Haggai and Zechariah show up in Ezra 5. Why? Are they there to direct them for the first time or to redirect them in how God had already led them? Are they there to direct or to redirect? Redirect, that's right. They're there to redirect. Another word for that is to remind them. Let's remind ourselves why we're here. And he sends two of them, right? Haggai's like, dude, I need backup. This is a rebellious group. 16 years they haven't been doing what God told them to do. Remind them. Anybody here need a reminder once in a while? Oh my goodness. We need to be reminded. How often? A lot. There's a reason we're referred to as sheep, I believe, in Scripture. We need help. Often. Check out some scriptures. Paul writes to the church at Rome in, in chapter 15 as he's, as he's winding down his letter. He says, and concerning you, check this out. Look at the words here. And concerning you, church in Rome, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves, you're full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge. You even admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to... What does it say? Remind you again. He doesn't say so as to remind you. To remind you again. Which means he told them and reminded them and reminded them and reminded them and he's going to remind them again. What's that saying when we're kids? If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Oh, I hated that, but it's so true. It's just true. So Paul writes that directly. And then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians about Timothy that he's training Timothy the same way. He says, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways in Christ, just as I teach everywhere and every church. So Paul reminded. And then he raises up Timothy and says, You're going to have to remind them a lot. Just like I had to remind you, Timothy. Timothy, remind them. And then we remind others. That's just the way it goes. I need to be reminded. You need to be reminded. And I love Peter in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1. This is fantastic. He says, therefore, therefore, right? I will always be ready to remind you of these things. Even though you already know them and have been established in truth, which is present with you. I consider it right, Peter writes, as long as I am alive to stir you up by way of reminder. And so there's times when I'm studying and I'm prepping and I go to type something and I think, oh Lord, I, I've said this before. Maybe Lord more than once. And he says, yeah, 
and do it again. And then I just start typing, okay, Lord, because we need that. We need to be reminded over and over and over again. Do we not? It's just who we are. And more often than not, what we need, more often than not, what we need is to be reminded of something we already know as opposed to needing to know more. More often than not, what we need is to be reminded of what we already know than simply knowing more. It's called stewardship. As we wisely steward little, He allows us to have more to steward. Look at the results in verse 2, going back to Ezra. In the very first part of verse 2, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, what did they do? What's the word? Arose. That was their response to the word of God. Haggai spoke. Zechariah spoke. Because God is over them. And they arose. They got their NFRO card. They are now first responders. They arose when they heard God speak to them through Haggai and through Zechariah. Let me ask you this. What's more powerful or more important? Those who strongly proclaim the Word of God or those who strongly respond to the Word of God? Which is more important? Did you say both? Say both. You're right. It's both. They're both important. We need God's Word, right? It needs to be proclaimed somehow in our life, but we must respond. They're both incredibly important to allow God's Word to be proclaimed to us and for us to respond to the Word that our King sent to us. So, I might be wrong. I suppose, Richard, Richard, look at me. Perfect. Thank you, Richard. I suppose if God, and he's here, and he says, Richard, this is what I need you to do. Would you do it? God says, you need to do this. We, you would arise, right? I believe you would. Surely, if God said, surely, here's what I need you to do. Boom. Would you, go, would you arise and would you go do it? Say yes. You must say yes. You're going to ruin my analogy if you say anything other than yes. Of course we would. If God tells us to do something, we're going to arise, we're going to get up and do it. Would we not? I believe every one of us would. If God showed up and said, I need you to do this, I believe every one of us would arise and say, absolutely, if God's asked me to do something, I've got to do it. Verse 1 tells us that Haggai and Zechariah, it says in verse 1, prophesied in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. As if God himself was saying, Brian, that's what I need you to do. As if God himself were speaking. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, I cannot help feeling that the man who preaches the word of God is standing not on a mere platform, but on a throne. You, you get that, right? That when, when somebody's proclaiming the truth of God's Word, we're, we're speaking on behalf of the throne of glory. And so it's a huge responsibility, for sure, on my part. I get that. But it's a huge responsibility for those of us listening when God speaks. He speaks for a purpose. Not to fill letters of a book, 
or pages of a book with letters and words. He speaks to move. He speaks so that we will arise. He speaks so that we will respond. I love that. I think that's a great quote. So how do you and I allow the Lord to speak to us? That's really a great question. How do we allow God to speak to us? And when He does, do you arise? Hmm. When He does. Because I believe if God zapped Himself down her and said, Glenda, I need you to do this, I believe she would do it. I believe every one of us would. So when He does speak to us, do we arise? Because He speaks to us. Oh, He speaks to us. He loves us. When He does... Do we arise? So perhaps, this is our defense mechanism, perhaps we refrain from hearing so that we can refrain from arising. That's how we'll solve that problem. Hey God, what? La, 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 la. Oh, I didn't, yeah, I missed it. Hey man, we do it. I've done it. We can find a way to ignore our God, for sure. We refrain from hearing so that we can refrain from arising because if indeed we believe He is the King of kings and Lord of lords and He says, do something, I believe we would arise. I do. How could we not? So the problem then really is, are we listening to God? Because if we did, I believe we would arise. I do. Because I don't think He'd ever ask us to do something that He didn't know was perfect. What a great challenge for us. So let me ask you another question. I bet this is true of a number of people here. I don't know whether it's one or whether it's 17. Where has the Lord been speaking to you where he's wanting you to arise? I bet you that's happening for at least one person here. Probably 10 people, maybe 20. Where's the Lord been speaking to you and he's saying, arise, arise, trust me, do this, do that. I bet you it's true. I just bet you it's true. Because God speaks all the time. And when He does, He wants us to respond appropriately and to trust Him. Let's look at the end of verse 2. The end of verse 2, it says that these prophets, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. We saw the same with Jesus. He didn't just proclaim truth. He He was in the trenches. He was with them, supporting the work. And we saw this to be true with Paul. And I love that this is also true with the pastors and elders of this church, that we are with you and we are supporting you. It's so true of the elders and pastors of this church. We don't just proclaim. We are there to support you and to be with you as they were here in verse 2. All right, our second stanza. A governor that's wondering what's going on. That's verses 3, 4, and 5. Let's read those. At that time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the Jordan, and Shethar Bazanai and their colleagues came up to them and spoke to them thus, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? And when we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this building, but the eye of God was on the elders, and they did not stop them, uh, Tatanai and his people did not stop them until they could get the report sent and, and waiting for a return reply. Here's a great question. Look at the end of verse 3. What's that question? It says, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple? What a great question. If that question were asked to you in this setting, how would you reply? Brian? Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple? How would you reply? Huh? God! 
That's the real answer, right? Oh, yeah, Cyrus threw some you know, ink on a paper. But it was God who made that happen because that's how Ezra 1, 1 starts, that God stirred in the heart of Cyrus to allow them. And Cyrus issued a decree because God ordained it to be so. I love that. It was the Lord. And so as we continue in our walk with God, our, our growth and maturity, our sanctification and our holiness, we simply get, like they did here, we get a better and clear understanding of how the Lord works. And so that we can respond that way. Because that's really ultimately how they responded, which we'll see in a second. And we get a better understanding of, of where He's working and what He's doing when we understand, like they did, the hand of God. Let's talk about our focus. I think this is interesting. If you remember last week in Ezra 4, God's people last week in Ezra 4 were facing an enemy that is a little bit more on the hostile side. Chapter 4 is hostility towards God's people. Chapter 5 is not. Uh, Tatanai is just doing his job. He's just making sure that what they're doing is copacetic with some ruling from years ago. And he continues to let them build until he gets word that it's fine. So you have a hostile environment in in Ezra 4 and a non-hostile environment in Ezra 5. And I think it just, for me, it's a picture that life is somewhat like that, right? We have sometimes hostile environments that we live in as believers, just like God's people. And then we have non-hostile environments. But in both environments, where must our focus be? On God. And that's what you see in Ezra 4, and it's what you see in Ezra 5, that the people are encouraged, keep focused on God, whether the environment's hostile or the environment's not hostile. Keep focused on God. Okay, so how does that play out practically? Let me tell you. How that plays out practically is this. When in our walk, in our Christianity, sometimes when things get a little hostile, things start to kind of fall apart. Some people lose their focus on God, don't they? It just happens. Other people turn to God when there's hardship. But some people just don't focus on God. Things get really gnarly, and they get focused on the gnarly, and they, they don't focus on God. Then there's a camp of people, this is probably where I lean, is when things are really good. Our enemy is just kind of quiet. He's not really giving us much trouble. Things are good. Life's good. And we lose our focus on God. Right? You get what I'm saying? So our, our, our environment's not hostile. It's like, hey, everything's kind of pretty good. No, you know, nothing's, you know, money's good. Marriage is good. You know, everything's just fine. And, and uh, we kind of take the foot off the gas in our spirituality. But in both scenarios, we've got to keep our focus on God because one or the other is typically how we tend to lean. Things are gnarly, we retreat from God. Or things go well, and we retreat from God. The enemy will do whatever it takes to get us to retreat from God, but we must stay focused on God. Mm, right? Okay, so... Okay, good. Third stanza. A God that is working. We're going to see in this letter that they start to understand that God's working. Okay, so let's read verses 6 through 17 in this letter. All right. So this is the copy of the letter which Tatanai um, sends to Darius. Verse 7. So they send this to Darius and they say, To Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones and beams, and it's, taking, it's going on with great care, and it's succeeding. And then we ask the elders, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish the structure? We also ask in their names, in verse 11, and this is their reply, and I love this. 
Thus they answered, We are the servants of God, of heaven and earth. And we're rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king, Solomon, a great king of Israel, built and finished. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, they understand what's going on. They're giving him a perfect picture of their history. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them, our fathers, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And he destroyed this temple and he deported our people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus issued a decree that we can rebuild this house and also the gold and the silver could come back with us, is what verse 14 says. And so he, he said to them, uh, take these utensils, Cyrus says, and go and deposit them back in Jerusalem. And then Sheshbazar did exactly that. And it's been under construction, but it's not, it's not finished. We stopped. So now if it pleases the king, Tatanai writes, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure, uh, which is there in Babylon. And if it be that a decree was indeed issued by King Cyrus, then just let us know. No problem. Okay? What I love about that letter is the Jews knew their history. When you know your history, then you know your God of that history. They go together. They go together. They knew their history. They knew how God worked. And you can see that in Darius's letter, or, or in Tatanai's letter to King Darius. The Jews knew their history. They, they told um, Tatanai how the temple was built by King Solomon and why it was destroyed. They were aware of that. They framed their answers now in such a way as to give all the glory to God. They had learned. They didn't cover up the sins of the people that went before them, of the nation before them a couple generations ago that sinned. They knew why the temple was destroyed and why the people were deported to Babylon. And so in God's promise or warning, in God's promise or warning, which is found in Deuteronomy 28, we're not going to go there. I would encourage you to read that. But that's where God made His covenant, His promise or His warning. And He said that they would be taken captive if they didn't do according to the covenant, according to what they agreed to do when they were about to enter into the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And so for me, when you consider that, that this too is just another comforting act of our Lord's faithfulness, that He is true to His Word, that we serve a God who's true to His Word. So when He makes a covenant, as He did in Deuteronomy 28, and says, hey, look, you do this, it's going to be spectacular. You do this, it's not going to be spectacular. They're going to haul you off. They're going to destroy this temple. And then when He does that, it's what He should do. Because if we can't trust God for the words that come out of His mouth, then it's not a God worth serving, if He's not worth trusting. And so it's really just another comforting act to see that, wow, this God that we serve is true to His Word. Mm, love it. And so they related how they continue in this letter, how, how Nebuchadnezzar had exiled the Jews to Babylon, and how 70 years later, and, and, and it was prophesied that they would be exiled. And, and what did Jeremiah say? They would be prophesied for how many years? Seventy before they can come back. And guess how many years went by before Cyrus issued the decree? Seventy. Oh, because God's true to His Word, right? And so they're relating all this, that Cyrus gave them permission exactly 70 years later to return and rebuild the temple. 
And Cyrus also gave them the temple treasures so that the ministry could be established again according to the law of Moses. Oh, church, I I'd so desperately want all of us to know our history. So often we, we find ourselves gravitated towards just the, the New Testament. That was a long time ago. So the Old Testament is really not that much longer. And we, we refrain sometimes from that part of our history. Oh, we need to know that part of our history, the Old Testament as well as the New. For when we do, as these verses show us in this letter, it will make our work. When we understand God more fully, like they did here in Ezra 5, it will make our work more focused, more diligent, more understood, and more meaningful. And we would have a response like, this is what God did, this is how it happened. Our people got hauled off, but He did this and He did that. And so then we work, when we understand our history more, we can work with more focus and more diligence and, and more understanding and more meaning. And then we, like them in verse 11, will come to the realization that we are but servants of the God of heaven, which is what verse 11 says. When we understand who He is and we understand His history, then we say, we're, we're just but servants of this amazing God with this amazing history, with these amazing acts through years and years and years. We are but servants. And finally, it seems, I love this church, I, I hope you... You'll, you'll get this for sure, but I just hope this hits your heart the way I, I want it to. Verses 12 and 13 reflect some language that is so indicative of our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Let me explain. Look at verse 12. There's two words that it starts off with. But because. Okay? But because, let me read the rest of that. Our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed this temple and deported the Babylon. So after those two words, but because, is that good stuff or bad stuff? It's bad stuff. But because these bad things happened, but because our fathers provoked God to wrath, He destroyed the temple and deported the people to Babylon. And so after those words, but because, you can shove in whatever you want about your life. I can shove in whatever I want about my life. But because, Dave, you were like this and you didn't do this and you did that and you sinned this way and God told you this and you didn't do it and He told you not to do that and you did it anyway. But because of all that, Dave, bad things happen. Oh, but look at the first word in verse 13. What does that first word say? However! However! Oh, however! In the first year of Cyrus... A decree was issued. Go back and build the house of God and get back in relationship with Him. Our lives are full of but because. And the enemy says, oh, but because you're this way, Gilbert. Oh, but because you did this, Bill Kahn. Oh, but because you did this. And you can say to the enemy what? However, however, we are conditioned with but because kind of stuff. Yeah, that's true. But because of this, and but because of that, and but because of this, and but because of that. And then we can just say, oh no. Oh no. Because the enemy is the accuser. The enemy is the but because guy. And we can say what? However, some of us get stuck in the but because. And God says, however what He does for us. That's our walk with the Lord, man. We've done some bad stuff. 
<laughs> however, however, oh, that encourages me. Haggai and Zechariah, their mission was to bring about spiritual renewal and to motivate the people to restore the proper worship of the Lord. That's why they're there. Does the King of Kings and Lord of Lords not have the right to a proper worship? Of course he does. That's why they're there. And I'm going to ask you this. Is he receiving a proper worship from you? Is the Lord receiving a proper worship from you? Is he receiving it from me? Is he receiving it from our church? Is he receiving it from the church that way? And the church that way? And the church that way? And the church that way? Who does not need to give our Lord a proper worship? All of us do. And the church that way? And the church that way? Our God deserves a proper worship. Are we giving it to him? Our God is so good. Our God is so good. We serve a however God. I'm so thankful. I'm going to invite the worship team up, and as they're walking up, I'm going to pray, and then when we're done with our last worship song, if you need prayer from our prayer team, they'll be available in the corner. Let's pray. God, we are incredibly grateful that we get to study the history of who you are and what you've done. It just reveals so much more about you so that when we have the accusation from the enemy who says, but because, that we can respond as you would desire for us to respond with however, however, because you rebuild, you restore, you renew. And we thank you for that. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. It's in your name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.